With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Ovi Farouk, or as I know him, OSF. Ovi spent the best part of nine years at Barclays as a distressed credit trader before moving into Web3 as a builder, investor, and artist. Given his wide range of experiences, both in TradeFi and crypto, we cover a lot of ground. We discuss the commonalities between fixed income and NFT trading, how to revive a failing PFP project, and what it felt like when he found out Snoop Dogg bought his artwork. Please enjoy this conversation with OSF. Today, I'm joined by OSF. He's been doxxed. His name's Ovi, but I'll always call him OSF because that's just how I know him. OSF is the creator of DGENs, Regens, Rec Guy, and many other art pieces, as well as the founder of Canary Collection, Flips Finance, and a host on Rug Radio. Probably one of the longest bios of someone in Web3. So OSF, thank you for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. <laughs> I thought we'd just jump in with a fun thing to start with Goblins and Rec Guy, your project. It's been a pretty horrific market. Everything seems to be down. And there's two projects in particular are doing well. This Goblin thing, which has definitely gone viral and has massive emergent behavior, and then Rec Guy. Something those have in common is their CCO. Help people understand the different types of IP. You've done a great job explaining this, how the projects evolved, and what are the options for a creator like yourself of how you can give the IP to the community? CCO is probably one end of the spectrum. And I think what it officially states is that someone can replicate the artwork, adapt the artwork, use it however they really want, and even use it for commercial purposes without prior consent of the creator. Let's take Red Guy, for example. You could take a Red Guy and screenshot it and then go and sell it to someone else without my consent. And I'm telling you, I'm absolutely fine with it, which is pretty crazy because brands these days are so focused on like, this is the IP or if you look at intangible things on a balance sheet, the goodwill values the thing that you have the copyright over and, and people value those things is very high. Definitely, it took me a long time to understand why something like CCO is so valuable. When you're starting out as a new project, the way I see it is it's a marketing cost. It's like free advertising. The more people create derivatives of your work, use it in other ways and use it to benefit themselves, it upstreams value to the original collection, to the OG, and it's marketing. It gets more eyes on it. That's the way I view it. You don't need to necessarily own the IP via copyright to be successful I think what you'll find, by the way, is let's say someone goes out there and makes a red guy hoodie. People love it. People will buy it. Even though I haven't copyrighted it, 
if I made a Vectri hoodie, people would still want to buy it because like that's the one that OSF made. And the thing about the blockchain is it's all verifiable when you talk about NFTs. So it's this pretty amazing thing where it just shows that I don't think you actually need the copyright thing. Luxury watches, you get fake Rolexes, you get you know fake APs and all that kind of stuff, but people still want to buy the originals. It doesn't stop people from buying the originals. That's the way I view it. I think it's fantastic. You then have the next level, which is something like the Apes or like Yacht Club, where I don't think it's fully CCO. You own the commercial rights to your specific ape that you own. And then you can go and do whatever you want with it, but you can't replicate the BAYC hoodie. So they still have some retention of that IP. So if that's somewhere in between, I think that's still great. People can buy their ape and just go do whatever they want with it. Kind of like franchising a little bit. And it has huge brand value. That's one of the things that have progressed over the last few months and the last year, which is super valuable to collectors, but also to creators. If you don't get so worried about ring fencing and owning all your stuff, you can actually open it up to having a much bigger community, having free marketing, free advertising, and in my opinion, upstreaming value to the original collection. I think I'm still struggling with it. My eyes have opened to it because the beginning was, well, Bored Apes had given the IP and the whole idea of NFTs are scarce. Now I own something, I have the rights to it. And then as CCO projects came out, it was one of the things I like about Web3 is running in the face of the critics. Like the critics are all joking, I can right-click save. And then the big movement is, sure, go right-click save it. They're kind of giving it up. One of the questions I want to get your take on is just the value accrual of the idea that if something's scarce, that's what people are espousing value to. But then by CCO, are you just making stuff unscarce again and unwinding the beauty of what people thought NFTs were? I understand. I just think people are smart enough to distinguish between the derivatives and what the original person made. In that regard, I don't think you lose scarcity. I think people are like, the original collection is what it is. It's scarce. If I want to get the OG one, I have to get that one. CryptoPunks, for example, think about how many different derivatives there were of that. All sorts of different things. It never really made them any less scarce. Sure, people could buy a cheaper version if they couldn't afford the original one, but it still upstreams value to the original thing. The next thing that's been a big trend with the CCO, and again, it's something funny that Rec Guy and Goblins share, and there's obviously great timing behind it, is this no roadmap thing. That early on, there was this playbook of, okay, we're going to give IP to the NFT holders and then say, okay, we're going to use this money and here's the things we're going to use it for. But now it's either a laughing goblin or LOL with Rec Guy. Like, there is no roadmap. I think there's a lot more to that than just a joke. But why don't you give us your thoughts on roadmaps versus no roadmaps? One of the things that made Goblin Town and Rex Guy a little bit special was that this is a free mint. We're not taking any money from you up front. We're not going to go out there and build you a big boat or a golf club or some crazy event or anything like that. No roadmap. We're also not charging anything up front. And this is free. If you like the art, if you vibe with it, come in. If you vibe with the idea of the community, just come in and get involved. Goblin Town secondary trading fees are 7.5%. We ours for Rec Guy are 5%. So you do actually make money on the trading revenues. In that way, the your incentives are a bit more aligned with the community because for us to now make money, we have to stimulate trading in that complex. And to stimulate trading, you have to actually be committed to building it and focus on doing things that people perceive to have value. A lot of these NFT projects, you had a lot of rug pulls this year where basically pre-funding projects to the tune of tens of millions of dollars in some cases. And then you now are hoping the creators go out there and do the right thing which is like a massive risk to the collector. Whereas this strategy is actually super collector-friendly. It's like, you know, you don't pay anything up front. If it gets popular, then it gives the creator a chance to go and do something. And that's how we thought about it, especially in this environment where people lost a lot of money. I think people really connected with that. With regards to roadmap, you can go out there and promise a bunch of things. Then it puts pressure on you to do it and collectors hold you to it. You don't know what you can really do. Do we create Rex Guy without anything in mind? Absolutely not. Obviously, we have things in mind. Anyone who's followed myself and Amanda in the space knows that things aren't just done without some thought behind it. You know, like we wanted to come across like free men, come get involved, come have fun. 
market sucks right now. They're meant to be a bit of fun and we have no roadmap right now. A lot of people are asking us what's going to happen, but it gives us a chance now. We've given you the free min. Now give us a chance to try and create something without being held to timelines and Q1, Q2 and all this kind of stuff. Gives a shot at building it. I like that. I think when you do a project, take money out front and you have no roadmap, then it's a little bit like you're paying these guys all this money and they're not telling you what they're going to do with it. But if you don't take any money out front and you don't have a roadmap, I think it's fine. Obviously, people get into the projects at a later stage. You pay something, you buy in a secondary and it's not free. You have to think about that. And that's something I'm definitely conscious of. But yeah, this is a strategy that seems to have worked for us and has obviously worked very well for Goblin Town. It's something a bit different and something that I think you will see a lot more of actually. It's a much better way to align the collectors with the creators. Part of Web3 is fun. You're building in public. Your mistakes and your successes are all there for everyone to see. But there's still something fun about the magic of you created something, you're part of this idea. We don't know where it's going specifically. When people talk about all these analogies back to the Board API Club, the original roadmap was like a lo-fi radio and a pixel board to draw, which of course, the first thing everyone did was draw like dicks on the wall. <laughs> Even though there was a roadmap, it was a quite silly roadmap. And then there was dreams of, okay, if they had all this money, what could they actually do? So I'm a huge fan of, if you believe in the people, it should be a really low cost, if not zero, and then buy into them as opposed to some of these more scammy things. On the scam side, you talked about rug projects. What's your take on this idea that this balance between what a rug is versus a failed project? Some of the creators created stuff, took a lot of money, it didn't do anything. And it's like, well, it just didn't work versus take the money. There's a fine line there, you know, that a rug pull, in my opinion, is something that someone creates with the intention of never committing to build it. A failed project is like, we had genuine intentions, we wanted to make this thing work, and it just didn't work, we couldn't do it. I think there's a difference. I think there's a spectrum of it. A lot of people created NFT projects because they saw the low-hanging fruit of, we can get this thing out, we can make a few hundred grand or a few million dollars, and then we can try and build this thing. They tried and they realized they bit off more than they could chew and it was very difficult. I've had experience of the second one because when we did DJs, it was something that we had genuine and honest intentions. We wanted to make this thing that kind of just didn't. We tried to things that didn't work and we were sitting there at the end of six months, at the end of 2021, and the project was at zero. We had the full price of zero. We'd failed. Our response to that was to not move on. Our response to that, well, the next thing we do has got to be beneficial for DJ. We owe these people because we took in some money up front. We owe this whole community something, even if it's just writing some daily commentary in a Discord. And that's how it started out. We owe them something, so they at least feel like they have some value to it, and they at least understand that we're trying to do something. I think that's a difference. If you have a project that's failed, the first thing is don't give up. Right now, the full price of that has gone from zero at the beginning of the year to now 0.5, 0.6, and we've resurrected it. They've all got a free minute of rep guy, which is 0.6, and we've added value to it. That took us basically almost a year to do. It took us about 10 months of work from when we launched, going through two iterations of that price going to zero. And the whole of this year, we've been working on getting that back. You have to really spend at least a year, in my opinion. You should view that as your annual salary or whatever. At least a year of working on this thing to have a go at resurrecting it. Giving up after a few weeks, giving up after a month or two months, in my opinion, is not good enough. The second thing is, if the project doesn't work out and you move on to a new project, that's not good either. You could be like, this didn't work out, but I had this great idea and this could work. Cool, man, but you have all these other guys that you failed. You earned something. Even if it's just they get a free mint to your next project or they get an allow list to achievement, whatever it is, you owe that project something. So if you're going to start something new, you better give the original guys, the OG guys, some recourse to it. That's what we do with DJs. If someone's made a collection, they've tried for a year, it didn't work out, and they're just like, look, this isn't my thing. 
people create businesses, people fail. It's not the first time that's happened. And I get that. That's something that I personally couldn't ever live with. And I would always feel like I wanted to right my wrongs or turn failures into successes. Yeah, I would want to commend you because we'll get into our backstory of how I got to know you. But when I minted like 40 DGENs and I went to zero and it was a mess, but I believed in you and Mando. And then when you came out, you're like, I'm just not going to give up. It was so different than what you'd seen. There's a lot of other drama with people taking a lot of money out of the market, doing it again, doing it again. But the third one really worked and it's at a good price. So everyone wants to protect their own bags. But in your case, you seemed extremely genuine that like you weren't going to give up. And obviously it worked out really, really well. I find that unique in a space where anonymous builders can say, I'm going to do something, get a bunch of hype, take a bunch of money from people who are unsuspecting. And then I think that's the worst side of it. What you guys have done is great. The Snoop Dogg thing. I thought that was amazing. Obviously, Snoop is a collector and he's a big deal when he buys something. So I think it was a couple of nights ago, he was smoking, said, I wanted to buy NFTs. What should I buy? I don't know if it was a wrecked guy raid, but your project got named. Not only did he buy it, he changed it to his PFP. Were you aware of that? What was that like? I literally had no idea. When that happened, I was in Newcastle, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with the UK, but it's slightly industrial in the UK. It's a very popular bachelor party destination. That's what I was doing over there. I got there in the morning and just been out drinking and stuff the whole day. So I had no idea that happened. I had no idea that like, this community was forming. It shows if you have a good idea, you don't necessarily need the creators to be there driving it. And then someone texted me and was like, that's cool. Snoop Dogg bought your Rex guy. And I was like, what? I went on Twitter and I saw the thread. I saw all these people posting Rex guys. I saw that he bought one. You know, the volumes were going through the roof and it was insane. It was a shock to me. A lot of people ask when you get some of these celebrities involved, did you pay them? Was something there? That's never our thing. We've never paid a penny on marketing. We just want to do it organically. That's why it was just such a shock to me. He's out of the blue, looked at this thing, he's like, yeah, this is cool and I want to buy it. That's what happened. I had a couple of Zoom calls with the people that he works with. They were like, yeah, we just loved it. <laughs> we love the vibe of this. We saw something in it and we just bought a couple and we saw the reaction. This could be a bigger opportunity. Crazy shit happens in this world and that was one of the things. I'll always remember that. Let's zoom back out. Got to start at the beginning of your prior career. So I was anonymous on Twitter. I left a traditional career at Fidelity and I wasn't ever using social media. So this was like my first step into it. I met you as an anon and I could tell by the words you were using and the words I was using about liquidity and markets. I'm like, this guy definitely is from Wall Street. We started chatting and then we realized we were both from fixed income and credit. So maybe a little bit of background of what you were doing before you were drawing pictures of Wreck Guy and selling them to Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work at Barclays. I traded. I was a trader. I traded high yield credit for those of you who are familiar with the different asset classes in traditional finance. I started out in London. I spent about six years in London trading high yield and distressed credit. I moved to New York to do the same thing in 2018. And I was there until midway through 2021. So I spent almost 10 years as a trader, both in London and on Wall Street. The usual typical like Wall Street guy thing. And that was basically my life for that whole time. I get this question a lot, but I love to hear how you answer people are like, oh, how do you go from fixed income credit to trading NFTs? What are some of the common things that you see from TradeFi to crypto DeFi NFTs that make sense? And how is it completely different? Trading NFTs is so similar to the market that I used to trade. The main reason is because it's not exchange traded. So it's over the counter. If you want to sell your NFT, you don't just go into Coinbase and you get a price. You have to list it and then someone has to buy it. You have to go through that interaction. That's what trading high yield bonds or distressed bonds are like. You send out a price where you want to buy or sell it. You have to make the phone calls and find someone to buy it from you or find someone to sell it to you. It's a bit more of a relationship thing. People talk about their ideas, what they like. Like, hey, I really like this because X, Y, and Z, and this is why you guys should buy this. There's a lot of that in this market. Also, the nature in which it trades, 
we used to see, especially in the distressed world, a lot of crazy price action and NFTs are the same thing. I had a lot of success trading volatile markets and trading volatile credits. I felt like that was always a strength of mine. I don't really get scared when things go down. I know where to fade things when they go too high. And I'm good at just like taking a step back from the hype and making a calculated decision as to what to do. And this market, I felt, really was the same. So it was really natural for me to step into it and start trading it before we thought about the longer term things, just start trading it. I didn't realize it was the same thing. Instead of sending on Bloomberg, sending messages, you're sitting on Discord, sending messages. <laughs> it was basically the same thing. But instead of trading bonds, I was trading pictures of monkeys or whatever it was, which I think was awesome. Big difference. Two things. Number one, there's obviously no regulation. So people can do whatever they want, send out whatever communication or information they want. There's no one there stopping you. That can get abused a lot. That's definitely a bad part of the market. And the second thing, despite having said that, is all the data is public. So when you trade bonds, for example, there's something called trace, which tells you where something trades, when it prints. You see the price, but you never see the size. You don't have all the information as to what happened. You don't get the information right away, like the trade may have happened and it doesn't get reported straight away. Whereas with blockchain, everything is public. All the data is there. You have all the buyers, all the sellers, all the prices, all the volumes and everything. You can actually run the stats and run the math and that stuff to help you make decisions. And obviously now there are plenty of tools out there that help you analyze your NFT trading. That I think was a big difference. Being on blockchain, being on chain, everything is public and all the data is there to be used. I feel the same way. It was such an easy transition from fixed income to crypto, even though people are like, well, that was a low risk asset. That was an equity or high volatility. I think it really comes down to illiquidity. You talk a lot about metrics. I think your website does a great job. We'll walk through some of how your investment process works. But tell me a little bit more about how you think about measuring illiquidity in something like this. Something that people get too focused on this market is the floor price. This is the floor, this is the floor. And they misunderstand that this is the price that they can just Say the floor is 70, if I want to sell my NFT, I can go sell at 70. They misunderstand that liquidity. When that's not actually the case, the 70 price is the price which you can buy at. It's the cheapest price, not where you can sell at. That's what in our market, what we call the ask price or the offer price. When you trade markets, and even when you go and trade your ETH or whatever, you'll see a two-sided market, see the bid and the offer. The floor price just shows you the offer, or just shows you the ask, because I know people use offer in different ways in this world. Choose the ask price and you don't really know. So better way of looking at liquidity, in my opinion, is to compute or infer or calculate what the bid is. Now, it's a bit tricky because you have different rarities and things might be priced higher, but you do get a lot of, lot of bot bids. There are a few different bots that will come in and bid collections. And they only really do it in markets that are going up. They only do it in NFT products that are going up. Otherwise, they're going to get caught with stuff that's going to go down. If you see a collection with a lot of bot bids that shows you an open like how below the collection it is, whether it's 20% below, 25% below, or 10% below, that gives you a good indication as to how liquid it is, and it gives you a good indication as to where it's trending. And if you see the lowest bid on the collection is only 10% below the floor or 5% below the floor, it tells you that your bid offer is actually very narrow. And if that's a bot bid, you know that it works in size, and then you know it's actually very liquid. If you see that the lowest bid is actually 50% below the floor and it's just one guy bidding, watch out because that thing's going to be going a lot lower. That, I think, is a good way of looking at the liquidity. I don't think there's any actual platform that shows you that very well because it's a difficult piece of data to get and get it accurate. The other things that I think are worth looking at is the number of listings. The number of listings and something dramatically increases on a 24-hour period. You know, more and more people are wanting to sell it. If the number of owners are constantly reducing, it means one guy's out there buying. They're not necessarily always bearish things, but they're definitely stats that I always look at to make sure that you get an idea of the technicals of it, basically. Transitioning to you leaving Wall Street, I saw a text between you and Mando. I think it was like the original text between you and him at like three o'clock in the morning. You told him to mint all these board apes. He thought you were crazy, told you to go back to bed. 
And then you two went and bought some. If I have the story correctly, right? But you bought some, you ended up minting them at 0.08, you sold them, and then somehow you two got back together on the idea and ended up buying 70 of these things at like an average price of five each. So what exactly happened and why did you even attempt to do this? I minted them as just a YOLO thing, but I was convinced. You seen the text of Amanda, I was like, do you mean just buy these? I just got that feeling. I was DMing Keyboard Monkey at the same time. And I was like, you should buy these. And he was like, ah, I've had too much wine. I'm not going to buy them. I think I posted a screenshot of that as well, which would be funny. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sound like I was really smart in doing it. It was a complete YOLO. But at the same time, I felt good about it. And it was the first one where they had a professional website. The marketing was really good. These guys have thought out what they're doing. The idea of a yacht club. This is the first time you've seen an NFT project give you the idea of a membership club. Now that's such a common concept, but these are the first guys embracing that concept. I was like, yeah, that's cool. Like, I would like to be a part of this kind of thing. So yeah, I minted a bunch. It went up a lot. And then I sold everything. I minted 150 and I sold everything. I had like a portrait gold ape smoking a pint. I had a trippy ape in an astronaut suit. I really had some good stuff. I had the 13th rarest ape, which is a portrait blue beans. The blue beans was the only trait for it. It was insane. But I sold it all. I basically sold all the floors and I thought I'd keep the rares. And you had this whole crypto crash in May last year. And I basically just sold the rares as well. I just didn't. At that point in time, I wasn't really sure if the NFT idea would take off. I wasn't really convinced on it. So I wanted as much liquidity as possible. Sold them all. That's the worst trade I've done. Best trade I've ever done was minting them. Worst trade I've done was selling them all. Mando was very skeptical and it was throughout this whole time. And a couple of months later, two or three months later, he was like, I'm really bullish apes. And I was like, dude, after you've been telling me to sell these things, I'm not going to do it. I'm not getting back into these. Emotionally, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So he ended up buying 69 of them between three or four ETH. He bought them in his wallet. I then dig it back into the trade at about 80. Then I sold them all at 20. He helped them through mutants. And in September of last year, we decided to join our collection. So up until this point, our collections were separate. And we're like, look, let's just work on it together. We're better as a team together. Amanda and I have worked together at Barclays. We sat next to each other. We started as brads. We sat shoulder to shoulder for many years. We knew we were at Barclays. Let's have the same risk, join our collections together. We valued our collections, joined it. And that's when I got some ownership of the apes, which was in September. My buy-in back into them was really at like 30 ETH. 30, 35. I'm sure at that time, he was probably thinking, now's a good time for me to monetize them in bulk at 30 yards. I was really bullish on them then. I got bullish on them again at that point because we had a call with Yuga Labs and they couldn't tell us anything specifically as regards to their plans, but it was clear to us, these guys are real. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't just some random joke. This is a real team who know what they're doing. They just got Gaia Siri on board as well and they explained to us how that dynamic was going to work. These guys are shooting for the moon here and I think they have a good chance of doing it. That's how I got back into the apes, thank God. So I'll be killing myself right now. <laughs> it's such a funny time watching the timeline because people like Keyboard Monkey and you, and there's a whole group of OG traders. It was one of those things where I think I bought the time when you were selling. I didn't mint it, but I was buying in May. I minted a bit, followed it, and then people were selling and I bought them at like half an ETH or something. It was just a time where the volatility, and I think you talked about this recently, but I think people look at it now for the people in the NFT space, they're like, wow, this thing was a great investment and people just sat on it and made all this money. But I don't think they realize, and I don't know if you've done the math at how many greater than 50% drawdowns we had, because it would like go up to one, crash to point two, go up to two, crash to point five. There was so many times where you'd be like, I can't believe I have this much money and pictures of monkeys. Like this is so silly. It's insane. When they start to get into 10 ETH and 20 ETH, 30, 50 ETH, 100 ETH, it becomes a lot of money for a lot of people and you still have the same thing. An ape three weeks ago was 450 grand. That was the floor. A week ago, it was 150 grand. Maybe it's close to there now. I don't know. It's huge swings that you're talking about in this whole complex. 
it's remarkable. It's amazing how we're kind of numb to it now, as I'm sure you are, because you just go through it so many times. But it's amazing how people have hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars swinging around in these JPEGs. And they're just like, yeah, just, you just don't bat an eyelid. It's quite remarkable, really. I think about, I'm curious how the Barclays trading desk when the Bloomberg story came out, because when we traded volatility and thought about price and bid ask spread and what the big move was, whether it was the 08 crash or COVID, there were big moves. And now I think if you trade any of these illiquid things, I've never seen moves or volatility like this relative to other markets. There really isn't a comparable. Getting into the Canary Collection, you and Mando come together, you value your collections, you create this fund. I remember we were talking back then and you were thinking, maybe take outside money, maybe just run your own money. But walk me through the thesis of it. Were you guys thinking about trading and selling rares and flipping floors and being very active? Or were you thinking more buy and hold? How did you set up the fund and how do you think about investing that money now? We started collecting in February, March 21. And at that point in time, the focus was on flipping things, trading it around, flipping it, trying to accumulate ETH. When we joined our collections in September, it was very much let's invest in things rather than trade things. And we were really bullish on this idea of NFTs taking off, digital ownership, Web3 brands, communities, all that kind of stuff. Let's invest in things that could become the next multi-billion dollar companies in the future. Our focus changed from trading and flipping to buying and holding. Now, a few months on, we don't really trade in it much. From time to time, we'll look at our holdings and be like, okay, we want to sell some of these and move into this. It's just rebalancing and not necessarily trading. So when you think about a project, and you can do another one, but I think because of how early you were in your size, when Yuga Labs actually went out and raised equity, I think you might have been part of that small group. When you think about buying a project like that, that has equity, that has tokens, that now has a liquid token, how do you think about it from an old world, like a capital table? Is the equity senior secured the most valuable? Does A16Z have a priority position over all of us? Because I think a lot about where does value accrue in these things. I totally get the emergent behavior. But as an investor, how do you think about where does value accrue? If we take the Yuga complex, so far, the thing that you get paid in are the airdrops, the rewards, whether it's the next collection, the land, ApeCoin, whatever it is. And they've been very clear about giving the priority there to the original apes. That's been the case so far. That's the highest reward so far. You now have this dynamic where you have ApeCoin, which is governing the whole ecosystem that has value that they're going to be pushing as a medium of currency. And you now have Yuga Labs, which owns the IP to some of the stuff. And you have A16Z, which invested in Yuga Labs. Does that change things in terms of where you stand and where you rank? Well, look, NFTs aren't securities that aren't technically financial products. So you don't really have recourse to anything. You're reliant on them continuing to stream value to you as an NFT holder, which I still trust them to do because that's what Yuga set out to do. I think A16Z understands how this market works. You have to keep doing that to keep the value of those things because it's a little bit like your stock. But now you do have this complication with ApeCoin. ApeCoin is mostly owned by Yuga. It's mostly owned by their investors, AC&Z. And those guys, if they're thinking about how much money they want to make, their incentive is actually to drive value towards ApeCoin rather than the NFTs because that's how they're going to make money on their side. The reality is you're probably going to fall somewhere in between. I think they're going to push ApeCoin really hard. Where do you stand? Where do you want to be in the ecosystem? What's senior secured? What's unsecured? It's tough to say because what do you really have recourse to? If Yuga Labs default tomorrow, if they go bust, what happens to the apes? It's not debt. You don't owe anyone anything. It's just a picture. It will go down because people will be like, oh, shit, these guys don't have money to drive to it. You don't really rank anywhere in a capital structure. That's the thing about capital structures. Where do you rank when something defaults? 
But you will have a cap structure in like the Ugolabs complex because they'll have people that have debt or they own money to, they have their people have equity in there. Certain people will get paid some kind of recovery value there. So in that regard, let's say you have defaults, you're not going to get anything as an eight holder. But if you own equity or if you've lent it to them, you may get some residual recovery value. Technically speaking, if you're an investor in Yugo or if you've lent to Yugo, you sit at the top, then you have the equity or whatever, and then you have ApeCoin and NFTs. I don't know where you rank them. That's what you would see as the equity tranche of a capital structure where you have a ton of the upside if it goes really well, but you're going to get zeroed if it doesn't go well. We've invested in Yugo. I think it will be a great investment. I think we'll make money on it, but I don't think we'll make as much money on that as we will on some of the NFTs, basically. You can make good money on a ceiling skill bond, but you probably make more money on the equity if you're right. Which is an interesting way to think about it. This is just a technical question, I guess. But did you guys sell traditional equity as well as the coins? Is there actual equity on top of the actual tokens that the investors got? You did a funding round, a seed round, which valued them, I think, $4.5 billion. Nice seed round. Yes. I think it was the biggest seed round ever, actually. And then they raised either four fifty dollars or $500 million, And that was separate to ApeCoin. That was just an investment into Yuga Labs. There is not ApeCoin where some of their investors got an allocation. We actually didn't get an allocation of that as a Yuga investor. But I'm guessing like A16Z and those guys got an allocation of ApeCoin. So it's two separate things. They weren't investors in ApeCoin, but Yuga and their investors got an allocation in it. So we've had OSF the trader, OSF the fund manager, and now we have OSF the artist. DGENs happens, for people who don't know, it was a project. Interesting thing is how we met. It's like my first Twitter spaces as an anon and asked a question that I did like the buyback mechanism. It didn't work. Then you had regens, which was a second attempt to reboot, and that didn't do as well either. But then all of a sudden, you started creating art. As a trader creating art, you're a fan of XCopy, one of the biggest artists in the space. Have you always been creating art or was this a new thing? When did you start drawing like this? From the ages of 13 to 18, when I was a teenager, I actually spent all my time online. I was like an online DJ back in those days, which is now about 15 years ago for me. I was into art as a kid. I used to draw a lot as a kid. Art was one of my favorite subjects. I did well at it. I started making online art. Back then, there's no crypto or NFTs or anything, obviously. There's an online art community called DeviantArt. So I had a DeviantArt profile. I'd take photos or draw stuff in Photoshop. It was very different to the art I do now. But I used to do that. I spent all my time online and taught myself how to code as well. I spent my time on like IRC channels. It was the real old school stuff. I loved it. Like I just enjoyed doing it. And when I turned 18, I went to university. I had less time for it, did different things in my life. That was always a hobby for me. I never thought I could make money out of it. You know, you never think you can make money out of doing stuff like that. It was just a fun online thing. Didn't do anything, hadn't touched it for years. During COVID, I did start painting stuff again, physicals, just to do it again because I hadn't done it for many, many years. I got back into it a little bit. When I stumbled into NFTs, I was like, this is the stuff that I used to do 15 years ago. But now you have crypto, you have NFT ideas. There's actually a digital economy around it. You can monetize it. People actually make money out of this stuff, which is great. Maybe I should try to create some art. I looked at the stuff people were making. I was like, wow, this stuff is so good. People are so talented. I have zero chance of making or doing anything or having any success. I've been that idea and just carried on with the collecting side of things. But yeah, in September last year, I was back at work. I was probably bored in some meeting, doodling things, drawing things on my notepad. And I was like, hey, well, I just mint this thing for fun. I mint something on foundation. And someone bought it. Someone bought it for half of an ETH. I think by this time, I'd been involved enough in the community that people were like, maybe that has some value because this guy is involved in NFTs. Maybe one day it could be valuable. So I was like, well, maybe I'll do another one. I saw the other one was like 0.2 ETH. I was just like, I'm not going to try and make money out of this thing or make it a big thing. I was enjoying drawing things on my iPad and it was cool to mint it and just see someone want to buy it, even if it was for very low. I guess what happened is that they slowly started trading at higher and higher prices. Like the next one was 0.69 ETH, the next one was 1 ETH, the next one was 1.5 ETH. 
Then I had this guy, Mooncat, come in and buy the next three or four pieces, and he'd set a higher price in each one. With each piece, well, like I learned a bit more about different techniques, about how to animate. I got more comfortable with drawing on an iPad, using different brushes and stuff. So my pieces actually got a lot better as well. They got more detailed. They're a bit more in vogue with ideas and memes and stuff. They're semi-autobiographical. You can see a lot of them are on trading for and that kind of stuff. That's what people kind of vibe with. One day I sold a piece for 6.9 ETH and then Super Air accepted me and the next piece sold high. And it kind of went crazy beyond really my imagination. So I never really ever thought I would have a career in creating things. I never ever thought people would like my art this much to want to buy it or spend that much money on it. It's something I definitely pinched myself over because it spiraled very quickly from something that I was having fun with, basically. It's such an awesome story. I think that for people that have seen your art, it maybe proves a theory I've had that there's a lot of large collectors that came from TradeFi or had experience in TradeFi, whether it's 6529 or Mooncat. It's not trying to dox them, but your art is very much people who are on trading floors in front of a Bloomberg screen, exhausted out of their mind, being like, is this what I'm doing? (laughs) But with this theme of like NFTs and crypto trading, and I can imagine in the pandemic, all the people that used to be on a trading desk and maybe trying to flip up to see like what the giants were doing, if they were at home right now, are probably trading like gutter cats and bored apes or something. (laughs) (laughs) So it definitely resonated with a certain community very deeply, obviously. I like drawing stuff that resonated with me. You're right, being exhausted in front of a Bloomberg terminal and going home doing something different or just being like a degenerate and all that kind of stuff. I guess I'm one of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who are in the same position doing the same stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons why maybe it got so popular because it's stuff that people could really relate to and resonate with. You put it in a cool, glitchy format and that kind of stuff. And people are like, yeah, that's cool. It has high energy. That's definitely part of the reason why it was so successful. I bid on a piece, I think Mooncat outbid me. And I was like, this is getting out of control. And then the more it happened, the more I wanted it. And the whole FOMO set in. That piece, because I know you and not just my belief in you, but you are able to draw a part of my life that I'm like, I want to own that. This is something I was curious to get your take on because Rec Guy feels like my little ownership of this thing. So maybe I can't own that one. I forget the name of it, but it's like the green one with all the screens and the guy's just like looking at him or something. I love that one. But I can't afford that now because that's in a vault and never coming back out. So in hindsight, if you could go back and rewind to DGENs and regens and all the stuff you've done, and it's not about having regrets, but for newer artists coming up, do you think that the one-of-one artistry, building a brand first before releasing the collection was part of the success? Or is it just your brand and every one of these situations is different? It helped, you know. What I realized with the one-of-one art and some of the editions, and the editions are like relatively low edition sizes, is that a lot of people wanted to collect the stuff. I can see my follower base on Twitter going up. I can see a lot of engagement on the art. A lot of comments were people just like, I would love to own this, but I'm never going to be able to afford it. It's out of my price range. Even stuff that's at half an ETH or whatever, that's one or two or three or four grand. That's a lot of money for a lot of people, you know, it's out of range. I wanted to create something where a lot of people like this art, there could be a community around it. And I just want people to be able to own it at something that's affordable. That was where Red Sky came in. It was like, I want to do a PFP, but the objective of it is not to make money. The objective of it is to let everyone have a chance to own something. Not everyone, but let as many people as I can within a 10K collection own something at an affordable price, which was zero, mint price free, and then just build a community around what I'm doing. This is the best thing about Web3, right? If you own someone's art and they're doing really well, the value of your art goes up. You enter this journey of success or failure with lots of people. And I like that. I'm a team person. I like working in teams when I was at Barclays. I love playing team sports. I like that feeling of camaraderie and we're all in this together and let's do well. And I felt like I had that with my collectors, but I wanted to have that on like a bigger scale and just get all these random DJs in who love the art, get this thing for free and just come and be part of this journey. That was the idea behind it. 
you're absolutely right. I hope that people were able to collect something. It's like, okay, now I own one of these things or something that I relate to within this ecosystem or within this art that I like or enjoy. Yeah, I think it's awesome. You also, just to round out your time, and I'm kind of curious on now how you're spending your time. You founded Flip Finance, which is basically a website to look at NFT analytics, some of the stuff we've talked about. You're also doing Rug Radio with Farouk. How is your day now divided? Where are you concentrating your time? Is the art and the community your focus? Is running Canary? Is Flips? How are you splitting up your time? Flips, I wouldn't say we necessarily founded it, but we saw a lot of synergies between that and DGENs, which was DGENs were more fundamental. And we reached out to extremely talented devs. We've joined forces. And so we became a part of that team. To their credit, the two guys working on that, which are not myself and Amanda, they put in all the blood, sweat and tears and they've done an amazing job at getting that to where it is now. There's some cool things coming for that. But I quit my job thinking that I would have more time, thinking that I would have a life again, I'd be able to do more things. And at the beginning, it was like that. I was like, I can just wake up whenever I want, go to the gym, chill. And suddenly I found myself doing a million different things. Amanda and I have split our responsibilities. And I'd say right now, I've been more focused on the DGEN side of things, the art, the rec guy side of things. Amanda's been more focused on flips. He's been more focused on Canary. We've looked at or we're in the process of turning that into fun. He's been spearheading that. So we split our time up with that. But I think the one thing that's taken up the most time this year has been DJs. I'm in that Discord every single day. I chat to everyone every single day. I put country in every single day. We're now writing five to seven NFT reports every week. We've been doing that for almost two months now. So we have 70 or 80 reports that we've written. We've almost covered the top 100 NFT projects. That's the kind of stuff that it takes time to put these formats together, to write things. We do have now analysts helping us, but Amanda and I still write reports every week. That's the thing that we spent most of our time on this year, which I'm happy about as well, because that's the thing I felt like the community we owed most of our time to. Well, you're doing a lot and it's probably a good place to end. I like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? Next six months is definitely DGENs. We have some really cool ideas to make it good. I think it will surprise people. I think there are a lot of interesting things you can do within Web3. And we've been involved in lots of different areas. We've been creator side, collecting side, crypto traditional finance. And this is going to be the culmination of bringing everything together and giving people access to our world, if you like, or our ecosystem. That's the word that gets used a lot. A lot of it's about learning, education. And I think people will understand that. So that's definitely within a six-month thing, which I think could be really big if we can pull it off and do it well. And over six years, I think it's my art. I'm really ambitious with it now. I'm just a very ambitious person. And if I find myself an opportunity, which I may have stumbled on by luck, I then turn that into, let me try and make this as big as I can. For me, that's a challenge because it's something that's out of my comfort zone. It's not something I have experience in or history in or career or any knowledge of. How far can I push it? Like how big can I really make this? I feel like I have an edge in understanding like the business and finance side of things. If I can intersect that with the art, with this idea of Web3, maybe I can make something really huge. In six years' time, I would love to see that become this huge thing. I haven't told anyone this, but I set myself a target a few days ago in my head. I want to beat Beeple's record one day. Wow. Which I know is crazy. It's like the most ridiculous target ever. It may not happen. Why don't I set myself that target and see if I can pull it off? You never know. Maybe there's a smart way to do it. I think that would be something that would be really cool. I think it's a great target. I'm grateful for you sharing it with us. You were inspired by X Copy. I've never talked to him or her, but X's artistry really understands memetics, the time, culture, how game theory works, business, whoever X is is a very well-rounded, broad thinker. And you have that same skill set. You have the trading mind, the edge side, the analytics, plus this artist creative side that wants to come out. So if anyone's going to be people, I wouldn't bet against you. I don't think it's going to be me who buys the piece. But when Mooncat puts up the $70 million bid, I'll be there to celebrate. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for the time today, OSF. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 